Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. Okay, here's a joke. Why don't lions play cards in the jungle? Because there's too many cheetahs. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Janet Weiss, drummer for the indie rock supergroup Wild Flag. Supergroup. Yes. So what does that mean? Do, do they get changed in phone booths? and <laughs> Phone booths. What are those? Coming up, we'll learn some things you didn't know from Grammy winner Cindy Lauper. She just released a new concert DVD. Also, punk legend Henry Rollins tells us how to behave. Essayist John Jeremiah Sullivan tells us about Axl Rose. Yeah. And The New Yorker's Adam Gopnik tells us the secret of life. Spoiler alert, it's not naps. Actually, there's not much that isn't in this week's dinner party. Except the news, and NPR is going to provide that right now. Except for you, podcast friends, you get the express train to small talk. All week long, you've probably been hearing these culture stories. Prosecution has to show that Dr. Murray actually killed Michael Jackson. For the second time, the writer Joan Didion has shared with the readers the story of a loved one she outlived. A paternity suit has been filed against teen heartthrob Justin Bieber. Now for a story you might not have heard, we turn to Pat Morrison. She is host of the Pat Morrison Show on KPCC in Los Angeles and a columnist for the LA Times. Pat, what story are you talking about this weekend? I am going to be astonished by Salman Rushdie. Salman, the guy who writes doorstop-sized books, has turned to Twitter. Oh, no. Hashtag decline of Western civilization. <laughs> Exclamation mark. <laughs> yes, alas. He's, he started tweeting, uh, I guess, about a month ago. Yeah. And you, you can't turn the guy off now. I mean, he's tweeting about the World Series, even though he is supposed to be a cricket lover and from a part of the world that loves cricket. And he's even tweeted about, oh, gosh, do I have to say the name Kim Kardashian? Oh, no. You do. It's in the culture. <laughs> we have to cover yes. it. Kim, the reality TV star, filed for a divorce from her husband, Chris, this week. What did Salman have to say? Did he... he? He did rise to the challenge of coming up with at least a literary form, not a sonnet, but a limerick to or at least about Kim Kardashian. That seems about right. All right. Seems appropriate. Everyone, everyone tuning in is going to think they're listening to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, but let's hear it. <laughs> Are you ready? Yes. Yeah. Sir Salman on Kim Kardashian. The marriage of poor Kim Kardashian was crushed like a car in a crashian. Uh. Her Chris cried, not fair. Why can't I keep my share? But Kardashian fell clean out of fashion. Fashion. All spelled with K's. See, because he's smart. Unfortunately, you can't hear that on the radio, so thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> well, it's no man from Nantucket, I've got to say. But, you know, it's, it, this isn't too surprising since he was once married to Padma, the host of Top Chef. And they were divorced. Really? And so it's, it's probably no surprise he keeps an eye on reality shows to see who's they, single and who's not. <laughs> but, you know, what most people do not know about Salman Rush is like F. Scott Fitzgerald, another renowned writer, he got his start by writing ad copy. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't know Yes. That. He came up with this for, I think they were cupcakes, naughty but nice. And for a chocolate bar with some little, like, air pockets inside, irresistible. Oh, oh man. Those are kind of satanic verses. Yeah, they're kind of they? lame. But so he's used to writing short, so maybe he's going back to his original medium and he just has Twitter to enable him now. Move over, Ashton Kutcher. Pat Morrison, <laughs> thank you very much for the small talk. A pleasure. And now, time for cocktails. 
This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our world-famous history lesson with booze. Mm, we begin by telling you the history, and it's about another poet of sorts. This week back in 1883, Charles Bowles wrote his last poem. Now even the lit majors at your dinner party won't recognize that name. Michelle Philippi's here to tell you about him. Charles Bowles was known for two things, rhymes and robberies. It all began in 1871. Bowles had a silver mine in Montana until Wells Fargo Bank decided they wanted the land and cut off his water supply. Bowles walked away but swore revenge. And he got some, all right. For eight years, Bowles robbed dozens of Wells Fargo stagecoaches using a pseudonym he swiped from a dime store novel, Black Bart. Bart wasn't like other highwaymen. He was polite. He had a gun, but he never fired a shot. And then he started leaving messages at the scenes of his crimes in verse. I've labored long and hard for bread, for honor and for riches. But on my corns too long you've tread, you fine-haired sons of bitch. The poems made Black Bart a folk hero, even after he was caught in November 1883 and swore he'd never rob again. In fact, when he was released, reporters immediately asked if he'd write more poetry, to which he replied, Now, didn't you hear me say that I am through with crime? So that was the poetic historical tale. Now for a drink to serve along with it. On the line is Johnny Raglan. He is the saloon keeper at the Comstock Saloon in San Francisco, Black Bart's former stomping ground. Johnny, first of all, I want to ask for Halloween. I understand this week you went as a sheriff. I was, yeah. I, I came as a sheriff of the Barbary Coast. You know, I, I sport a, a pretty big uh, handlebar mustache, and so it was kind of a fitting thing, walking around in big boots and uh, Stetson hats. So you're the perfect person to come up with a drink for this criminal of the Wild West. I hope so. All right, so you heard the story. What drink did that inspire you to make? Well, uh, I read a little bit about Black Bart, and I thought the most interesting aspect was uh, how he was actually caught. Yeah. He left behind at the scene of his last robbery um, a handkerchief, and the handkerchiefs had the mark from where it was laundered. So, so they traced his handkerchief back to his laundromat, basically, and then exactly, and they were able to find out who he was. Yeah, the mark of the laundromat, FX07. So that's what I named the cocktail. So, does this drink have like soap in it? <laughs> Detergent? <laughs> no, we're gonna stay away from soap. I mean, I've tried soap in cocktails before, usually accidentally. <laughs> I, you know, to me, it was playing off the riff of black, serving some cocktail that was black. So there's a classic cocktail called uh, Black Velvet. Uh-huh. And that dates back to the 19th century, a simple mixture of stout beer and champagne. So the riff is we take the same recipe and then to that float Fernet Branca, which is about as black as it gets for a spirit. Uh, which would make it appropriately bitter. For sure. Yeah, it is. For, uh, you know, an angry stagecoach robber. But speaking of which, you ever have a patron who maybe after a, a, a few too many wanted to rob a bank? Yeah, I mean, for example, like at Comstock, we used to have these really sweet check presenters. We bought about 35 of these things and they were gone in 20 days. So it was like, oh, okay, so everybody gets drunk and then they feel like they have the right to just take things from people. Your your elixirs turn your own patrons into your own stagecoach robbers. We are our own worst enemy at times, that's for sure. 
So Rico, for a second there, when he said sweet Czech presenters, yeah. I thought he was referring to hostesses from the Czech Republic. <laughs> so you thought patrons were kidnapping the staff after a few drinks? For a few seconds, yes. What kind of bars do you go to, man? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've got vaults of cocktail recipes at dinnerpartydownload.org. Go steal them. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. Today, the interesting person is Jenny Slate. A children's book she made with Dean Fleischer Camp comes out this week. It's called Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, and it's based on the duo's animated short in which she performs the voice of a cute, very tiny shell. Guess what I use as a beanbag chair? A raisin. Guess what I do for adventure? I hang glide on a Dorito. I'm afraid to drink soda because I'm afraid the bubbles will make me float up onto the ceiling. That's why I'm afraid to drink champagne. (laughs) That adorable voice helped garner that adorable video over 12 million hits on YouTube. So here's Jenny's very appropriate list. Hi, my name is Jenny Slate. I'm here to give you a list of some of my favorite voices, the ones that I love the most, right? My first favorite voice is the voice of Ruth Gordon, an actress who was born in Quincy, Massachusetts, where my dad is from. You might know her as the old lady in Rosemary's Baby, or as Maud in Harold and Maud. She has the best voice. I like that um, her voice is both bold and very pushy, but also very gentle and wise. I like to watch things grow. They grow and bloom and fade and die and change into something else. My number two favorite voice would be Carol Spinney, the voice of Big Bird. He's very kind, but when he gets upset, you can really hear him getting flustered in his voice. I can follow that bird. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, which you should. You should watch Follow That Bird. He not only has a beautiful singing voice, it's clear and it's sweet and it's not quite perfect, but when he gets upset, he he really shows it in his voice. He does not try to hide it. He loses his temper. Who's Mr. Snuffleupagus? Yeah. Uh, Well, he's my best friend. What kind of a bird is he? He's not a bird. He's a Snuffleupagus. (laughs) (laughs) But your best friend should be a bird. (laughs) Why? Because you were a bird. Now, come on out and hunt for worms. But I don't want to hunt worms. I want Snuffy to come and visit. And if he can't come and visit, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to go home. What I like about it is that it doesn't sound like a quote-unquote character voice. It just sounds like another person's voice. And that's something that is important to me in the vocal design of Marcel. If I'm going to be someone else, I I guess I fully like to be them. See you on Sesame Street. I think that if I were to pick one voice that I wish more people knew about, and uh, you can hear it if you watch Bob's Burgers, is Dan Mintz. Bob's Burgers is a cartoon about a family that owns a burger restaurant. Dan Mintz, who is a man, 
plays the voice of Tina. I think my subconscious fears and my budding sexuality are getting all mixed up. Oh, okay, I, I, Tina, I don't want to hear So I think I'm sex. being attacked by zombies, and I start screaming, do you want to make out? It's just the best uh, vocal like, character design I've ever heard. And also, I think even if you know, you know, it's, it's a woman doing Bart Simpson, you really only focus on what you see, and you're able to sort of accept the voice as it is. I, that's what I think. My favorite voice is a weird tie between Julie Andrews and Bill Cosby. My wife and I have five children, and the reason why we have five children is because we do not want six. <laughs> They're not the same. They're just certainly not the same. Who would win in a... F- if, if there was a fight between, between Julie Andrews and Bill Cosby, I guess Julie Andrews would win. And snap! I love Julie Andrews' voice because it reminds me of just having bread and butter and jam and that the finer things in life are the little delicious snacks and good manners and having good posture, that those things really do make you feel good. Cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles, wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things. The guest list from comedian Jenny Slate, her children's book Marcel, the shell with shoes on, just hit stores. You can watch the viral video that inspired it at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. These are a few of my favorite things. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad. All right, we're going to take a break, but coming up, punk legend Henry Rollins gives us a lesson in etiquette and name-dropping. Martin Mull and Dr. Joyce Brothers and Ted Nugent and Carl Bernstein. How'd they fit all those people in a hot tub? You'll find out when we return to the dinner party. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you a taste of something new. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, SAS John Jeremiah Sullivan tells us about the black hole that gave birth to a rock star. Wow. And The New Yorker's Adam Gopnik teaches us two very important things. You know, you have sex in a bed and you eat in a restaurant. See, my whole life I've had that backwards. Weird. Learn something every day. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson, everyone. And joining us in our studio to answer listener questions about how to live their lives in polite harmony with others is Henry Rollins. Of course. Yeah. He was the lead singer of Black Flag, one of the defining bands of American punk rock. The man behind Rollins Band, obviously, or wouldn't have been called Rollins Band. Sure. Well, maybe. And for the past 30 years, he's been writing books, performing in movies and television. He hosts this amazing weekly radio show in Los Angeles. His new book is called Occupants. It's a collection of his photographs and writing, and it's pretty intense, Henry. Unexpected from you. Yeah, big surprise. Uh, (laughs) A lot of the locations I go to with a camera are some of the harder-hit areas of the world, and they interest me. I think a lot of Americans are quite often poorly served by our media and by our government. So you get a story on some of these countries that's not always what it is. If you really want to know, you really have to go. And there's pictures of suffering, pictures of resilience. But one thing that's interesting, in some of these photos, we encounter black flag T-shirts on the black market. Yeah, in Indonesia, in Jakarta, I encountered that beautiful woman, uh, the cigarette vendor. She's wearing a black flag shirt. 
And at that moment, two kids on a motorbike pull up and they recognize me from films. And they're like, you know, what are you doing here? They speak English, the university kids. I said, well, I'm tramping around the world. Can you explain to this good woman the incredible irony of the two of us standing together? And they did their <laughs> best. And I'm showing her the black flag tattoo on my arm. And she's nodding very, very politely, completely yeah. unimpressed. I, I said, but your shirt, my arm, the band, the thing, globalization. The big she, picture. And, yeah. And she just kind of went, basically, you want to buy some cigarettes exactly, or not? Because yeah. I'm not here for my health. So. But places outside Jakarta, you're a voice of authority. Yes, you were known for having a strong, occasionally aggressive moral compass. So we have some questions from our listeners who want to know how to behave. I'll do the, I'll do the best I can to keep up with you. All right, All right, so here we go. Our first question comes from Paul in Davis, California. Paul writes, I have a band... And my friend Joe really likes us. Not his real name. <laughs> he comes to all of our gigs, rain or shine. I do not like the band that Joe plays with. I see where this is going. Yeah. I feel guilty about not going to any of his band's gigs. On the other hand, life is short. Why waste it doing something you dislike? Should I stay or should I go? He says, quoting another punk band. Go to one. Paul should go to one of Joe's shows. Yeah, go to one show that perhaps uh, there's one that means a lot to him. To, to his friend? Yeah. Like, like oh, this band we, we love, we get to open for him. It's a big deal. You know, it's an hour and a half of your life. Go. And then you've made your statement. You've hung out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and music's hard work. You want people to like what you do. And, and that makes people in bands very, very similar. Britney Spears, I don't know what you think of her. She's probably a very nice gal. But she, <laughs> she works very hard on her records. Sure. I don't even know her, and I bet I'm right about that. Hmm. And you could probably hurt her feelings pretty quickly by saying, <laughs> I, I hate your record. And that, that would probably, she probably wouldn't walk it off. And neither would I if you said that about mine. All musicians put so much into this. If you don't show up, oh, they feel it. They might be polite. Go, oh, no, don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, if, if he went once, that's a good sign of friendship. All right. So the answer is, Paul, go. And we've got a question number two. Yeah. Uh, Justin in Dallas, Texas writes, at dinner parties, I'm often tempted to adapt a story from third to first person to make it more engaging, more lively. For example, there's this one story where my mother was attacked by a large monkey in Thailand. It was climbing all over her. I was there when it happened, but it's a better story if I tell it in the first person, like pretending it happened to him. Anyway, I feel like this must happen a lot. Is it okay to do that? To steal well, a story and say it's yours. You're basically lying. Yeah. You're stealing. <laughs> but, Is that all right? Well, you know, the blues, there's a lot of theft in the blues and folk. You know, that, it's just that's kind right. Of, it's folk music. We, we kind of move things around and if it is a better story for you to tell it in the first person. You know, your mom, who got nearly eaten, had her face bitten in Thailand by a monkey. She might not be very good at pitching it. Maybe her mouth was hurt by the monkey. Maybe she's just not a very good storyteller. And maybe this guy is an exceptional storyteller who just needs good clay to make that bit wow. of pottery. Sure. Um, all great storytellers have a little bit of lie in a mask Mark Twain. For If it were me... No, I, I I would only say uh, here's what I saw happen, and I'd make it funny or you know, thrilling. Although, admittedly, a lot of stuff happens to you as opposed to most of us. Show enough, <laughs> but I would never say it was my face, and yeah. um, you know, here's the scars. All right, all right. So that's between you and your mother, yeah. Justin. Work it out with your mom, Justin. Here is uh, here's question number three: How is one supposed to act when embraced with a weak handshake? Do you counter with your own manly grip, causing the person to feel insubordinate? Or do you respond with a similarly flaccid shake, thus succumbing to the other's inadequate proclivities? That is a tremendous question. Mm -hmm. I shake a lot of hands. All right. Quite often, yeah. you have to shake someone's hand as a formality. Mm -hmm. And quite often, it's this limp, cold thing. 
you are giving me this limp paw. And who did that to me? Chris Rock did that to me. Really? Where he just placed it, this this very small, very limp hand. And we were both on the same label at that moment. We were both on DreamWorks. We were doing some big universal press hoedown. Erica Badu and uh, Mary J. Blige and Chris Rock and Sammy Hagar and myself. Oh, man. Let me just take that that in for a second. Sammy Hagar. That's uh, the green room on Mars. I I love this country. (laughs) And uh, and I shook hands. I said, hey, Chris, I'm on the same label and, and, you know, you're great. And, you know, because he he is so funny and, and, and so smart. And I stuck my hand out. And there's a look on his face like, really? And he just put this icy, cold, and I went, okay. And I kind of held it like an orchid. <laughs> like, I don't want to hurt this cold thing in my hand, but I want it to get out. So I gave it like shake one, shake two, and gently release. <laughs> like a butterfly. Yes. That has happened to me a few times. And so I always meet it politely with a medium handshake in that I am respecting your hand in mine. I am respecting this ritual. And every once in a while, uh, you know, you get that shake, that meaty, firm one. You're like, wow, that guy's hand strength is incredible. Yeah. It's uh, sometimes I do USO tours and I'll stand in front of a line of like, you know, several Marines and your hand is smarting at the (laughs) end of the day. All right. We have one last question, which is uh, what's the most memorable get together you've ever been to? Who, what, where? Details, please. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you've written about 700 books where people could get some insight into this. Well, I've been able to be in rooms with interesting people. Quite often, the green room at Bill Maher's show, Politically Incorrect, was fun because he would shoot like three in a day. Okay. So all the guests are basically told, appear at the green room now, just so no one gets lost. And if you're in the third episode, you get to watch and kvetch with everyone else. And so you're standing in a green room with Martin Mull and Dr. Joyce Brothers (laughs) and Ted Nugent (laughs) and Carl Bernstein. Literally. Wow. And you're like, wow, let's talk about Watergate. Let's talk about killing animals. Killing (laughs) the Whackmaster Arrow. You'd walk back to your car going, that was eclectic as hell. Yeah. Yeah. How did this happen to me? And my souvenir, a bow hunting catalog from (laughs) Ted Nugent. Audience, who did you hang out with this weekend? Henry Rollins, thanks so much. No problem. For coming in and giving us etiquette tips. You got it. And now, time to eavesdrop. Pushcart Prize-winning essayist John Jeremiah Sullivan just released a new collection called Pulphead. I think he's one of the best writers around. This week we overhear him reading a dinner party-worthy excerpt about the origins of Axl Rose, lead singer of the band Guns N' Roses. He is from nowhere. That sounds coyly rhetorical. In this day and age, it's even a boast. Socioeconomic code for, I went to a second-tier school and had no connections and made all this money myself. I don't mean it that way. I mean, he is from nowhere. Given the relevant maps and a pointer, I know I could convince even the most exacting minds that when the vast and blood-soaked jigsaw puzzle that is this country's regional scheme coalesced into more or less its present configuration after the Civil War, Somebody dropped a piece, which left a void, and they called the void Central Indiana. I'm not trying to say there's no there there. I'm trying to say there's no there. 
think about it, get systematic on it. What's the most nowhere part of America? The Midwest, right? But once you get into the Midwest, you find that each of the different nowherenesses has laid claim to its own somewhereness. There are the lonely plains in Iowa. In Michigan, there's a Gordon Lightfoot song. Ohio has its very blandness and averageness faintly comical to cling to. All of them have something. But now I invite you to close your eyes, and when I say Indiana, blue screen. And we are speaking only of Indiana generally, which includes southern Indiana, where I grew up, and northern Indiana, which touches a great lake. We have not even narrowed it down to central Indiana. Central Indiana. That's like, where are you? I'm nowhere. Go there. When I asked Jeff Strange, a morning rock DJ in Lafayette, how he thought about this part of the world, for instance, did he think of it as the South? After all, it's a clan hotspot, which could be read as a somewhat desperate affectation. Or did he think of it as the Midwest or what? You know what he told me? He said, some people here would call it the region. William Bruce Rose Jr., William Bruce Bailey, Bill Bailey, William Rose, Axel Rose, W. Axel Rose. That's where he's from. Bear that in mind. John Jeremiah Sullivan reading from his essay, The Final Comeback of Axl Rose. I love that how. Yes. By the way, if you didn't catch it, John is from Indiana. No letters, please. Important note. The whole piece is in his new collection of writing called Pulphead. We've got a link at dinnerpartydownload.org. And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where someone who knows something we don't tells us about it, so if the topic comes up in conversation, we can hold our own. This week, our teacher is award-winning writer for The New Yorker, Adam Gopnik. He's got a new book out called The Table Comes First. In it, he looks at how food has come to be such a central part of our modern society. So Adam, teach us a few of the things you learned while writing this book. Um, I learned so much. One of the things that was most striking to me was the history of the restaurant, that we're inclined to think of the restaurant as a permanent institution. It's like, you know, you have sex in a bed and you eat in a restaurant. (laughs) And you would never stop to think, well, somebody must have invented this practice of having sex in beds. Maybe it was in Berlin in 1842. I don't think it was Berlin. I think Berlin was... The cold place. Maybe it was in Italy, in (laughs) Naples in 1842. But it couldn't... You wouldn't think, well, it was someplace that that began. But the restaurant really did begin at a particular nameable place in time. It began in the 1780s in Paris... Uh And the inventor was a guy with the wonderful name of Chantoiseau, Birdsong, uh, who had the idea that people would want health food. What Chantoiseau was selling was uh, bouillon, you know, a kind of soup, a kind of healthy made soup, which he called a restaurant, meaning a restorative. Oh, so that's where the word comes from. That's where the word comes from. Gotcha. And by uh, drinking this thing, you would have something that was clean and healthy. And very important point, you could make your own choice about what kind you wanted to eat. 
Uh, and so the whole basic arrangement of the restaurant, that you come into an uh, elegant-looking place mm-hmm. where you have a table of your own, where you make your choice from a menu, and then, and this is perhaps the most crucial point of all, this may really explain why the restaurant took off yes. in 1780, it was a place where men and women could both go. You're like who aren't related or... Right, exactly. Okay. Who aren't married already, aren't brothers and sisters where you can mingle and you can do it legitimately. It's exactly what goes on nowadays in what we call health clubs. What's a health club, right? A health club is a place where men and women in a state of undress can (laughs) show off their bodies to each other and not be reproached for it. Why, Why do you go there in your leotard? Just going to work out. I go to restaurants, not health clubs, so I don't even know what goes on there. Well, but thanks well, for the insight. But you're a man of, in that way, you're a <laughs> classical man because that's why people went to restaurants. Okay. Well, along with the origin of restaurants, your book uh, discusses the idea of taste itself, specifically the role that society right. plays in dictating our taste. You write, we are what we eat, probably closer to the truth to say we eat what we are. Right. Now, this is a subtle point, and I struggle to to make it clear, and I want to try and make it clear. It's certainly the case that tastes change all the time. And one of the things that we see happen over and over again, that's what I was trying to say with that little epigram, is that we have these mouth tastes, things that we think are delicious to eat, and they very quickly become moral tastes. They become stands we're taking. They become examples of what we believe. In our own time, whole wheat bread and local rutabagas and uh, free-range chicken and all those things. Yeah. And we think they taste great, but when we eat those things, we're also making a moral statement. This is the kind of people we are. We're in secession from mass agriculture, from the industrial slaughterhouse and so on. So that kind of mouth taste, which is real, is also a moral taste. And that always happens in every period. And if you look back on it historically, you can see that inevitably it changes all the time. So, for example, just a few decades ago, uh, a person who was kind of a foodie would be the person who knew how to get a tomato in January, whereas now eating local and seasonal stuff is considered a mark of sophistication. When I first moved to New York 30 years ago, there was this wonderful restaurant writer named Seymour Britschke who wrote a guide to New York restaurants. I remember he was reviewing one of the great classy French places, and he says they fly their Dover soul in from France uh, every day. <laughs> now, Nowadays, we would think they're flying their soul. We have wonderful fish here. That can't possibly be a good way. Yeah. Horrifying, right? <laughs> horrifying about carbon miles, horrifying about how long the fish has been out of water. Yeah. We would regard that as an instance of the most meretricious, vulgar, false taste. <laughs> yeah. It was only 30 years ago when that was a sign you were really eating well. So those things change all the time. But here's the subtle part. All right. Uh, That doesn't mean that all of our tastes are nothing but fads and fashions. You know, you'll often read sort of um, satirical or snarky uh, books and articles about food that says, you see, tastes change all the time. So what these people like is just the cheap fad of their time. And I don't think it works that way. Aha. So now we're getting to one of the discoveries that lies at the heart of your book, which is the secret to life. The secret of life, as I, as I would put yeah. it, to distinguish it from the secret of life, which is a serious thing. Secret of life. Which, by the way, would have made a great title for your book. I'm not sure why you buried the lead. I think you could have moved a lot more units if you Might have moved a few units. Called it that. Food, you know, <laughs> that actually would have been a, probably a better subtitle, Food and the Secret of Life. Let's hear it. Let's hear the secret of life. Now you've depressed me so much because you've <laughs> made me realize that, no, well, maybe the paperback will, will take that title. <laughs> the secret of life, I think. Uh, okay. The secret of life is that we have to have uh, sufficient detachment from our tastes and values to see their absurdity and sufficient attachment to them to feel their necessity. We have to be able to look 
I'm going to go home tonight and I'm going to make uh, wild salmon if I can find it and organic broccoli and organic uh, brown rice mm. for my family. Yeah. Uh, those are very much the tastes of my time and my class and my kind. Uh, they won't be the same 25 years from now. They weren't the same 25 years ago. But I love everything that that wild salmon and organic broccoli and brown rice represents. I love the way that their tastes do have something, if you like, natural about them. Mm. I love the effort I have to make to assemble that meal. I love giving it to my kids. All of those feelings are completely real, even though, even though they're necessarily shaped by this moment in history rather than some other. And now if I'm at a dinner party enjoying that meal, I'll be able to stand up for my food choices. Right. Adam Gopnik, thanks for sharing the meaning of life. I really thank you, and I really enjoyed doing this. So, Rico, pretty cool, right? Restaurants are named after a soup that they used to serve. I but did not know that. That's not, that's not so strange. No? I mean, internet cafes, for example, are named after something they serve. Yeah, but that would be if we called all cafes internets. That is which, coming. <laughs> I am sure of it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks, coming up, we find out why we won't be eating cake this Thanksgiving. Yeah. And pop star Cindy Lauper tells us what to take along on a trip. A paper bag and some underwear and Yoko Ono's book, Grapefruit. It's an unusual trip. All that and more when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll hear a song from Luke Rathborn or young Mick Jagger. You get to decide. Yeah. Uh, we'll also hear from our guest of honor, musician Cindy Lauper. But first, it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about the best part of a dinner party, food. Yes, and Brendan, Halloween is over, which can only mean one thing. Piles it's... of rotting pumpkins <laughs> abound. Yes. But also Thanksgiving is coming. And uh, for food magazines, this is like Mardi Gras. This is when they go all out with their big Thanksgiving issues. They have like centerfolds of turkeys. Yes, with their huge legs. So it's also <laughs> a big time of year for Zach Patton and Clay Dunn. They run the blog The Bitten Word. Oh, I get that. And what they do is analyze all these Thanksgiving magazines to discern what the big holiday food trends are each year. So like Vogue is to fashion, The Bitten Word is to stuffing ingredients. Exactly. Okay. So Zach and Clay published their Thanksgiving trend analysis this week. The other day I talked to him about it. Clay, hello. Hi. And Zach, how are you? Good, good. How are you? Awesome. Uh, I understand one Thanksgiving trend that you found in these magazines is that these magazines aren't actually talking that much about Thanksgiving. That's true. You know, this is the fourth year that we've been very closely watching the content of Thanksgiving issues of food magazines. And I think our takeaway from this year's uh, issues and reading through all the recipes is that overall Thanksgiving content is actually lighter uh, this year than in previous years. Many of the issues of magazines like Food and Wine, for instance, are very light on Thanksgiving content. Still lots of great fall recipes, but uh, not as much of a focus on the holiday itself. This is this would be like department stores just putting up a single wreath at Christmas time. You know, just lightly touching on Christmas. What what gives? Yeah, we, the the theme of of the food magazines this year seemed to be Thanksgiving 2011. We're just not that into you. <laughs> Why? What what's the problem? I would think more than ever we need sort of like in this in these dire economic times we need time to come together and be thankful. You know, part of it is no doubt a cyclical thing where focusing on these holidays every year, you know, the main dishes stay the same. There's the turkey, there's a the stuffing, there's cranberry sauces, and 
I can imagine that coming up with all new themes for these things every year with lots of variations, sometimes you need to take a, a year back. Other magazines, though, like uh, Bon Appetit this year, they had just a magazine that was chock full of Thanksgiving ideas and sort of new takes on Thanksgiving. So, Which is interesting uh, because I guess Bon Appetit has just moved out east. So this is like their first attempt at sort of getting into the autumn thing, maybe? They used to be it, out west. I think so. You know, I think they have a new team there and they're really wanting to make their mark on the holiday. So they went big with Thanksgiving this year. All right. It's blowing up. They don't have Thanksgiving fatigue at Bon Appetit. Um, <laughs> well, other than magazines ignoring Thanksgiving, uh, why don't you give us a couple of Thanksgiving trends that you're seeing in these publications? Uh Definitely. Each year we have uh, sort of compiled an index of all the Thanksgiving recommendations from uh, the food magazines. And a new category that we added this year is vegetarian main dishes. Mm -hmm. uh, in the past, there have been plenty of vegetarian options in the food magazines for sides and things. But this year, a lot of the magazines feature vegetarian entrees that you could serve at your Thanksgiving. Everything from uh, lasagnas to tortas mm -hmm. to dishes that are cooked inside pumpkins. As an Italian, I'm 100% behind a Thanksgiving lasagna, but what what do you cook in inside a pumpkin that doesn't turn into mush? <laughs> I think that, uh, in this instance, it was a uh, a combination of vegetables and sausage and a... Uh, oh. Not sausage. Not oh, I'm vegetarian. sorry. It was vegetarian. I'm sorry. Yes, of course. <laughs> I was going to say. I was confusing it with the other. <laughs> you just don't tell the vegetarians that the sausage is in there. <laughs> but what, what, so it's not sausage. What is it? I'm sorry. It was like a, a barley component. All right. So that's a little less exciting to me than sausage. But yeah. then again, I'm not a vegetarian. <laughs> what about, I, I noted in the list here that instead of cakes, this reflects a larger food trend that me and my co-host hardly endorse, by the way. Uh, cakes are out and pies are in. Yeah. Over the past couple years, we've, we've noticed cakes have kind of outstripped the number of pies that we've seen. But, but this year, pie is back in a big way. And in particular, pecan pies... Pumpkin is kind of the, the the standard bearer pie, I guess, for Thanksgiving. Mm. And but this year, uh, different versions of a pecan pie seem to be extremely popular. That's cool because I actually like pecan better. I should note, by the way, that as of maybe five years ago, I didn't like Brussels sprouts, and then I started liking them about five years ago, and then the rest of the food world started liking them. So I think maybe you might want to turn to me as a barometer. You're, <laughs> you're quite a trendsetter. Thanks. Absolutely, and that's why I have a show. Um, <laughs> What, maybe one more of these. What is, what's the one that most caught you off guard that you were least expecting? You know, I, I think we were really surprised to see that corn didn't really have a place in the Thanksgiving menus again this year. Really? Uh, this is the second year in a row where uh, there were uh, no uh, side dishes that uh, featured corn. You know, cream corns and corn puddings are sort of a standard and staple of the Thanksgiving table. Uh, you know, we thought it was especially interesting that they weren't included. Yeah, I mean, corn... How can you not have corn at your Thanksgiving table? Corn is in everything now. <laughs> That's true. Lots, lots of cornbread recipes, uh, no actual corn recipes. It seems like you'd have to go out of your way not to have corn. Like you have to actively shun corn. Why do people hate corn? I, I think actually that, that's kind of a good point. I think maybe corn has gotten a, a bad rap. Oh. So you think like all this, all the negative publicity about corn syrup, et cetera, people are kind of eradicating it. Maybe so, but I, I guess... Thanksgiving dinner seems like an odd time to start caring about how healthful your, your menu is, but maybe that's what it is. We'll leave that research to the rest of the year. Clay and Zach, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Thanks for having us. 
So Rico, let me get this straight. You're now America's food barometer. That, yes. <laughs> you have a problem. That's, that's kind of sad because judging by your lunch, America is soon going to be eating canned tomato soup and Cheez-Its around or, the country. Organic tomato soup ah. and reduced fat Cheez-Its. Thank Ugh. you very much. And the soup is from a box. Not a can. Reduced fat Cheez-Its. You yes. heard it here first, folks. It's kind of coming to a restaurant near you. You can send us your trend predictions via our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guest of honor this week is Grammy Award-winning musician Cindy Lauper. She's touring in support of To Memphis With Love, a new live DVD and CD in which she performs blues standards. It was shot while she was on tour for Memphis Blues, uh, an album she released last year, and she was nominated for a Grammy for that. So, Cindy, we have a couple questions that we ask every guest we have on our show. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked? When you're promoting something like, say, like To Memphis With Love, you know, they start, usually they say, why the blues? So now I always say, because I'm from Queens and Brooklyn. <laughs> is that where the crossroads are in Queens? It's it's on City Line, really, yeah, <laughs> Brendan. It's right on City Line. I thought it was going to be on the George Washington Bridge on the way to New Jersey. The no, 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 no. That's a different crossroad. Um, you know, I... Everything I've ever sung is based on the blues anyway. Any, any, anything anybody does is based on the blues. It's one, four, five. Blues singing isn't easy to do. and you Really? I think it's much easier than my music. <laughs> you, it's really, you... My music is really, like, when I started singing the blues, and it, was, it, it just was so, there's so much room to sing. Hmm. And in pop music, you're on top of the beat. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, like, girls just want to have fun. I sang like a trumpet. It's so funny how certain people view that song when truly it was a song and is a song about empowerment for women. Mm -hmm. With a smile on my face and every race of woman that I could find in New York City, we marched down those streets singing Girls Just Want to Have Fun so that every girl could see herself. I remember that video well. And then all those girls go into your kitchen and uh, Captain Lou Albino, who's playing your father, isn't really happy to see them. (laughs) Well, and that was my mother, too. That was your actual mother. So I got to play with my real mother. Isn't, wasn't your dog Sparkles in there, too? Yeah, Sparkle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Poor old Sparkle, yeah. She's a, she was a great dog. Really you know, I have dog. a question about Sparkle. Is it true that when you were 17, uh, you and Sparkle ran away to Canada and you lived there in the woods for a couple of weeks? Yeah. I left my house with a paper bag and an apple and some underwear and Yoko Ono's book, Grapefruit. All the essentials. And the toothbrush. (laughs) Yoko became my companion when I actually was studying, even though school was such a drag for me. High school was horrendous. But all along, art and the music was what kept me alive. And Mm. I kind of did live in my own world. And I had walked along in Queens and under the L and Jamaica Avenue and saw this painting in the window and it, it really moved me. It was um, very impressionistic. And 
So I went up the stairs and met this guy named Bob Burrell, who became my teacher. And Your painting teacher. He not only taught, well, he was my art teacher, mm -hmm. but he also taught me about Martin Luther King. He talked about Gandhi. He talked about Thoreau. And when I was trying to fit in and be a normal person like my friends and it wasn't happening, I remember with Bob Burrell on his kitchen floor, he had a map, and we drew out how I would go and what I would do and how I would eat and how much it would cost every day. Yeah. And then I would take my dog, and I would take my charcoals, and I would take that book, Grapefruit, and I would go, and I did. So although I'm sure that many of our listeners had no idea that you and Sparkle uh, hid in Canada— uh, I'm required to ask you our second standard question, which is, tell us something we don't know about you, something that you haven't shared in an interview before. Maybe a lot of people don't know that, like, the DVD, I don't know if you have this DVD, live CD in front of you. It was my direction. Maybe they don't know that I art directed it. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's what they don't know, because a lot of times if I work with people, they totally don't know what I do. They remember girls just want to have fun. They're like, yeah, that's great, you know. <laughs> but they don't know that that's, I was arranging that stuff. Yeah. And it was not how people expected to work at that time with a singer. And you wrote, you wrote and arranged a lot of your songs. Didn't you write um, Time After Time, for example? Yeah. I wrote that with Rob Hyman. And it was named after the H.G. Wells movie or something? I was going through the um, TV Guide, and I just, it was just fake titles, just working titles, because yeah. I was arguing with them. I had become very good at arranging, and I was fighting about, I wanted to write. And um, they said, okay, you could write. Come in, you know, these days. So I just opened up the TV guide, and I just wrote all these titles down. I said, okay, just, oh, this is a good one. I'll just use it, you know, and then replace it. And then when I started to write the story with Rob and sing time after time. I couldn't take it out. Yeah. It became part of it, and I couldn't take it out. So I left it. And then I realized there's a million songs called time. Frank Sinatra sang a song mm -hmm. called Time After Time. I think Tom Petty has a song. I mean, you know, it's not an unusual Title. But it's better than if you pulled the name MASH out of TV Guide and tried to make a song out of that. Well, that's so. not an interesting idea, is it? <laughs> what are you going to write about that? Enrico, I should point out that Cindy eventually did acknowledge that pretty much any TV show title could make a great song. But, so I, was, I, I don't know about that. Dancing with the Stars. Is, are you kidding? That's That would be an amazing song. Real Housewives of the OC. Next oh. Aerosmith song, right there. Well, that's true. Jersey Shore is obviously a Springsteen. Ice Road Truckers, Skinner. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the dinner party for this week. Next time, a chat with an actual member of the 1% billionaire Richard Branson, the only man to have ever bankrolled both an airline 
and the Sex Pistols. If I'm really desperate to hang out with a rock band, I mean, I'm still good friends with Peter Gabriel. Richard Branson owns Rocket Ships. Respect him. Thanks this week to Nihar Patel, filling in for assistant producer Jackson Musker. Thanks also to Peter Clowney, Ellen Gettler, and Brendan Willard. And a special shout-out to listeners of WUKY in Lexington, Kentucky, which started airing us this week. We leave you now with One for the Road, a song you can listen to on your way to or returning from your weekend dinner parties. The tune is called Dog Years and is from a guy named Luke Rathborn, who in actual dog years would be a little over three. (laughs) So he's like 21, 22. Yeah, it's like puppy years kind of situation. Whippersnapper. (laughs) Uh, He's actually been playing for a while already. He opened for Devendra Bonhart on one of his tours. This track comes from Luke's latest EP, also called Dog Years. Bon appétit. Thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Uh, and here's a rough of a song we call Jersey Shore. Snooky's getting spray tan at the boardwalk tonight. 
The situations doing laundry by the neon beer light. The hair gel glistens and, and the, the DJ, DJ plays. I'm embarrassed they were born in the USA. USA. That is a hit.